Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Are you enjoying the Single Tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated Single Tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos, and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly, annual, or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad-free browsing on the website, free single track stickers in the mail, and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com support. Thank you and happy trails. Are you enjoying the Single Tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated Single Tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures. Through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos, and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly, annual, or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad free browsing on the website free single track stickers in the mail and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com support. Thank you and happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Earl Serafica. So Earl is the owner of Earl's Bike Shop, a specialized dealer located on the west side of Atlanta near the Georgia Tech campus and close to downtown. I first met Earl on a mountain bike ride several years ago, and he's remained a good friend and tireless promoter of the local cycling community here in Atlanta. Thanks for joining us, Earl. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background. How'd you get to the point of owning your own bike shop? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit long, but I'll, I'll try to abbreviate that in a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. I, I started, uh, um, cycling in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, that's where I spent most of my years there, spent my college years there, uh, lived there for, for quite a while. I was studying interior design and just really enthralled by building and creating, obviously in a more digital side. I crashed my car in the middle of Wisconsin winter, which was was horrifying and horrible. And I started just, uh, I was fine. My car was totaled. No no one was hurt. Um, But um, I started just walking and it was nice to have, to to, to just stop relying on a vehicle in college. Yeah. And I met my friend Jamie, who uh, had a, a fixed gear bike back in the early 2000s. And it was really enthralled by this this weird machine that had no brakes and it was so simple <laughs> and everyone knew, knows how to ride a bike but th- this sort of sort of connectedness to the bike was was really invigorating to me and um, kind of reminded me like skateboards back when I was in high school mm. so went to Beijing for a summer came back and just all I was thinking about was getting a tr- fixed gear and and all the possibilities and I didn't have a car so I was like well this is a cool thing and so I uh, bought a bike from a shop called Revolution Cycles and he brought me in with, with really welcoming arms, had never met me, and I, I could tell that even though I'd never been to a real bike shop, that it, he wanted me to really love bikes, and he was very caring, very gentle, and I didn't know anything, and I think he sold me a conversion fixed gear bike for like 250 bucks, and which, you know... Now I'm like, dude, you lost yeah. money on that. So, but he was so excited for me to to get on a bike that he did it, and uh, and I remember just just riding it and, and being really really pumped about it. Yeah, sounds like he spent a lot of time like talking with you and getting to know you. All for yeah, what is basically a pretty small sale. Yeah, very, very insignificant sale in terms of you know back then selling the treks that were super popular, and he wasn't a trek dealer by any means, but. Um, that always stuck with me and it's always been, I didn't really realize that interaction until I started my own shop and I've always respected him. He's, he's been a good friend of mine for years. Uh, and eventually I actually worked for him for many years, but I'll get to that in a little bit. And, uh, now that I own a shop, I realize how important that interaction was in terms of shaping 
how I treat my customers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was cool. I just got into bikes and just what was really cool for me was I started getting my friends pumped about bikes. Like, you know, this is in the early twenties where you're going out to party and Madison, Wisconsin has horrible parking and, and it should be because it's a small, small college, college town. So I started getting one or two friends riding and next thing you know, we're riding around, going to party to party. Next thing you know, it's 12 people. Next thing you know, it's 20 people. Next thing you know, it's like this huge group of people that, you know, all wore jeans and, and, you know, flannel (laughs) shirts and just riding around. And I remember starting to just buy bikes at Goodwill and making them into single speeds and selling them for like 50, 75 bucks to friends. And, Mm. And I, and again, I didn't realize like what I was doing. I was really kind of building a community and just with the spirit of how Jeff treated me, just bringing them in with open arms and, and lo and behold, 2008, the recession hit really bad. So me as well as many other people who were just getting out of college or had just had maybe two, three, four, five years of tenure in any sort of job lost their jobs. And I was like, I had uh, started working for Jeff uh, within that time because he's just like, oh, you're building too many bikes for people. Just build, just work for me. <laughs> and he gave me the tools uh, in terms of knowledge of how to build. And um, so I stuck with, with the bike shop and became really intrigued by just the mechanics of the bike and, you know, learning how to do something really well. You know, Madison was such a commuter-based city that people – rode the hell out of their bike <laughs> yeah. and uh and to, to take a you know 1990 trek whatever hybrid and and ride it through winter and then put in front of me and say hey make this work better it's like challenge challenge accepted right <laughs> but, I, but i think where like where the architecture part came in was like a, it just to be creative and to, to learn the process and maybe relearn a process even though you've done it a thousand times and do it better um and and just love the craft uh, and uh problem solve and from there, I moved to Milwaukee, started working for BenCycle. They put me in the internet department, so I was talking to people in Korea and Colorado to, wow. to uh, England, to Europe. It was, it was cool um, to get the other side, uh, to understand the, the, the stuff that 90% of people who work at bike shops don't get to see, uh, the ordering, the, the problem solving over the phone. Yeah. <laughs> on which parts work on what, but I, I wouldn't have done. Yeah, that's hard, right? You're like, I'm not sure what you're talking about here. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that if I didn't just get down and dirty and just be really eager to, to, uh, to learn. Um, this is all coming back to me more now because now that I own a shop, it's like, well, I see my staff and like, okay, well, how how do we get you pumped to ride, to to fix a roadmaster? <laughs> you know when <laughs> yeah. when you know it, it's hard because you know customer you know base model bike we sell is five hundred dollars, but to get a bike like that that that's all they can afford. But to tell them with a straight face, being like you know you don't have a lot of money, but we're going to try our best. And again, relinking, rethinking, and relearning, and being like, well, what's the best I can do for fifty bucks on this? And really going at it and solving that problem. Right. You know that's you know a two hundred dollar repair and do the best for fifty. That's just that's not bike mechanics. That's just problem solving. I find that very still very intriguing to this day. Um, whether I'm doing architecture or rebuilding a shop, which I'm currently looking at about thirty planks of two by fours here that I'm <laughs> refilled the shop. Um, oh, wow! But uh, so that all of that really intrigued me. Problem solving in terms of the bike, the the numbers, how, what to sell, how to use social media. That was really young back then in 2010, 2012, and uh, then I moved back to Madison, Wisconsin. Worked for Jeff at Revolution Cycles again, and kind of took a different role, and I started managing the place. And that was a lot of work in terms <laughs> of ma- taking what I knew from how long it takes to really work on bike and to really care for them, and then applying revenue streams, cash flows, and, and, and projections, it and doing that all. Right. Yeah. Was it a profitable shop when you were there? Were you like, wow, this guy's making a ton of money? Or were you like, uh, this looks like a tough business? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to talk crap about my old bosses or anything like that, but you know what? I think that, that you make a really good point. You know, a lot of shop people work in shops want to just fix bikes and, and, yeah. and, and get them rolling. Or some people just really like selling really high end bikes or just mountain bikes. Um, but the reality is that it's a hard job. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, 
you know, even today we sell a lot of high-end bikes, S-Works and, and really nice stump jumpers and things like that. But at the end of the day, most of the work is in your old hybrids that have been sitting in garages. Um, it's not very glamorous. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when, when you're an owner of a bike shop, where do you put, you know, what hat do you put on and at how much time do you wear one hat or the other? Do you, you know, you have just the, the health of the business is just revenue streams, which is what you, you know, your debt you have, what money you have now, and then what's going to look like tomorrow, next week, Monday. That's a whole job just to do that. Right. Then you have to talk about inventory and what bikes to bring in, the, the, the risk of taking in, um, uh, br- bringing one S-Works bike in, you know, a $10,000 bike is, is incredibly risky Yeah, because that customer is like, oh, I like it, but I don't like the color. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> Versus a $500 bike, you know, you could literally carry that and just close your eyes and it will sell. So what, what risks do you take on that side? So that you just have the back of the house, you have just the, the projections, and then you have, uh, then you have the mechanic work. And then you have just the other stuff like taking garbage out <laughs> and sweeping. Um, so, so going back to how profitable that was, you know, there's a lot of those things that, you know, and this is to a lot of people that I work with, like they like to wear or, or really focus on one hat mm-hmm. and forget to put the other hats on. And I took on a lot of the other hats that weren't taken. Yeah. It's hard to be good at all of that, but it sounds like you, you know, you have an interesting background and in that it sounds like you came at it from both sides. Like you got the community part early on, um, and then developed an appreciation for like the mechanical and like sort of the, that side of things. But yeah, ultimately you have to be really well-rounded, I think, to be successful. Yeah. Or, or no, or this is the biggest thing. And this is for anyone, mothers, fathers, people who work at any job, brothers or sister is, is to really admit to yourself, I'm not good at X, Y, Z. And to really know where you're good at and really and to just remove yourself from that moment, that minute, or that hour that you're working on something, and be like, "All right, what does need? What what really needs to get done? What am I good at? And what really hat? What three or four hats do I want to wear? And and then give the other hats away, and really find people to 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 wear the hats that um that they're good at, and and but you don't get to that until you're like, oh, I'm I'm doing this wrong. Yeah. And and I think a lot of people don't take take the initiative to be like, okay, I'm really bad at this. That's okay. I'm going to find, I want to fix this. I want to find the right people. And then really second to that is when you find people, don't just give them the hat and be like, bye-bye, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do the work. And, and again, it's like all the things I just talked about, but then, you know, train people, making them really know your vision and then really making that moment that they're working on that minute, hour, week or month or years really count. But if you're not there for them to foster them, to show them your vision and then show them how you want things done. That's hard too. It's, it's the training part, but so it's a mix of getting people that have that sort of enthusiasm that I do, but then also, you know, having as, as a leader, making sure I make time to, to communicate, which is huge, mm-hmm. the good and bads. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, that, that book leading out that I had mentioned, um, well, back to you by, I forget his name, Donnie Perry. Mm-hmm. It outlines all that. Like you could be like, you, you, you could read it, back to for back back um, front and back and be like wow there's a bajillion things that 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 a shop needs to focus on <laughs> yeah so what does your typical customer look like tell us a little bit about the cycling community in Atlanta and sort of what what you're seeing at your shop i've lived mainly in chicago madison and milwaukee and in atlanta but i didn't really bike in, in chicago but be able to move in three places and see uh different communities has been mm-hmm. been great and, and not to not to compare like goods or bads every every place is going to have the pluses and minuses and to the individual there's pluses and minuses too so yeah. you know in madison there was a very strong a commuter base i believe the percentage is like 10 percent of the population oh, wow. of some sort of population rides a bike and uh, as a commuter uh, and you could tell you just sit at a bench and just see people whiz by in suits and stuff. So seeing that and working on that bike and then moving to Atlanta, which is, I think, Bike Magazine, Bicycle Magazine had many years ago, and I don't, I don't quote me on this, but I remember reading it somewhere that Atlanta was one of the worst places to ride a bike in. Yeah. And I remember moving here and be like, oh, I'm such a commuter. Let's see how it is. And it's totally fine. It's, it's you know, if you have this skill. <laughs> just just a little hilly. That's, that's probably my only complaint. Yeah. Talking about mountain bikes, riding single speed 
29er fully rigid uh, for 10 years now having to question my whole cycling life when I moved here was <laughs> was was fun also disheartening too but yeah it was it was intrigued and I kind of always just gravitated towards loose nut cycles because that was the kind of shop that I was working in I'd hang out there and uh, ride with some of the people there and then I started working for a shop called Peachtree Bikes and that you know Atlanta's big compared to Madison. Madison's mm. pretty small all the way through, but you know the culture of Sandy Springs versus Alpharetta versus uh, East Side of Atlanta to you know everywhere. It's, it's just different. It's like their own little mini towns everywhere. So, right. uh, so what I've kind of noticed about the community in Atlanta is that it the, the the people who ride here love it and and know the right people, and it's a very strong community. Before this sort of Beltline bike boom that 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 happened here in Atlanta, in Atlanta. and it, it what I really enjoyed about it was there was a lot of people that rode, but there's this huge opportunity for new riders to come in. Mm. And to kind of answer your question, the people that have been riding here for years, I mean, it's not like I've been riding for like one or two years. It's like people have been who've been riding here have been riding for like decades. Um, mm-hmm. And because you have to be a bit mentally strong to ride some of these streets when they didn't have bike paths. You know, I will say that in general, and, you know, not everyone's going to have the same opinion about this, but I think people are a bit more relaxed here in terms of driving than where I'm from. Midwest seems to be a little bit more uptight and and fast, but again, that's a general generalization. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I think that's where I I really enjoyed as I was working in at Peachtree and and into Simon and Shop, I was like, well, what does Atlanta need? And one of the things that I, I gravitated to was uh, your ride, Dirty Mustache. Did you start that ride? Were you one of the founders? No, I didn't. Yeah, I was early on, but yeah, a guy named Chris and another guy named Eric started it. Nice. Yeah, but I gravitate towards those urban mountain bike rides because it was, I loved that commuter spirit in me and wanting to not get in a car. Right. So it was cool to see. But I mean, back when you, when I came here five years ago, that was still, was that still like, did that feel weird? Like in terms of you starting that ride? Like I thought it was pretty natural because that's what I did in Madison. Yeah. It's, it's really different for sure. A different kind of ride. But yeah, I always wonder that, like, are there people in other cities that are doing this too? And I guess you can answer that. And yeah, I'll also mention that first ride that you showed up. I, I think you had like a six pack on your handlebars <laughs> and we were all like, whoa, who is this dude? Like he knows how to, he knows how to do it. So yeah, the, the, the Midwest, uh, cold winters get, get you to get you love to appreciate some beers. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's like, I like to ride, I like to ride hard, but I also just like, like having fun. I think, and it's really start wearing Lycra until maybe recently. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> cut off jeans and riding single speed mountain bikes everywhere. But it was to answer your question what the community is like in Atlanta, like it's, it's all those things, it's all the communities, but they're just in a bigger city. It's just, which you know, they're just small pockets here and they're actually, actually kind of big pockets. You know, you look at sort of the Mac riders and they're, you know, big groups of, of road cyclists and, you know, Dirty Mustache and, you know, Tour de Atlanta, which are more urban. And then you have, and these are more new and, and this is sort of where I think the, the community is changing in such a great way is, you know, you have rides like Dope Peddlers and uh, Bonafide who are doing really great things of getting people who don't know how to ride road bikes um, or don't know how to just ride the Beltline and just opening their arms. And same thing with M plus M. And these all have really started within the last couple of years. I think Don't Peddlers are doing it a little bit longer. But seeing that kind of very inclusive open arms, we're going to get you riding more is is mm-hmm. is really hard to do, by the way. Like starting group rides is, is really hard. Mm-hmm. And then my friends, uh, Austin and... Uh, Colton and Cam starting uh, M plus M, which is, you know, 100 plus 10, 13 mile per hour, 10 mile ride around town and ending at a bar. Oh, man, like (laughs) it was cool to just invite people into that, uh, my customers into that. Yeah. I mean, to go back to the question, yeah, the community here is, 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 is wide and varied and it's like, I'm at this point where like, well, which do you choose on a Tuesday? Like, which, right. which ride do you do? Do you want to have a chill ride? Do you want to have a you know smash fest ride on a road bike? Or do you want to go get muddy in an urban trail? Or do you want to drive uh, to go to gravel or do, do, do mountain biking? So it's, it's big. I think where 
I want to be a part of it is, is, is to connect more people to these rides. And I think, um, the weight of me always having to lead group rides, the, all oh, the lead, the chill ride or lead the fast ride. It's I've take it's, it's, I've just partnered with people and be like, Hey, are you cool with me sending more people your way? And yeah. I mean, I'm working geez, like 60 hours a week, you know, <laughs> just, just yeah. busting my butt trying to keep alive right now. Uh, but you know, still loving what I do and making time to ride. But, uh, it, it's nice to be able to really get to know a customer and be like, Hey, go to XYZ ride and just see them kind of blossom into community and being part of it and mm-hmm. so where this will lead in the future i mean i just think everything is growing gravel commuting mountain biking road biking has been really astoundingly popular in a great way and obviously maybe because of its covid but uh, i think the type of rider is different now too you know uh, you know road biking used to be this uh, Tour de France, um, Lance Armstrong. Mm. Someone told me, I think uh, one of the people who worked at the Velodrome, like, he said it really succinctly. It was like 15 years ago, all these people got into road biking because of Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. But since Lance Armstrong was a jerk, all these new people were kind of jerks. <laughs> now, sorry, that's, that's this general stereotype. Hey, hold but, on. You know, now I got into this back now. <laughs> <laughs> But there, you know, unfortunately, there there is an attitude and leaders to to road biking, and, uh, and those bikes were, you know, yeah, do you have the new Altegra, you have your Ace, and I think, you know, that was 15 years ago. So many. That's when I started. Now you have people that are 21, 22, or you know, into their you know 30s, 40s that have never heard of Lance Armstrong, and they're seeing road cycling in a very different way. And that's very exciting when you see people wearing just black or red, plain white jerseys instead of uh, whatever Nestle milk you know, jerseys, you know, it, and it's not about the label. It's not even necessarily about the bike, but it's about the sort of the, the sort of maybe the old school culture of riding, maybe European way of just like cafe rides. That's where I'm like, okay. That's what I'm really pumped about. It's less about elitism. It's about welcoming more people. And all these groups, still peddlers, MPLFM, bonafide riders, are adding, getting more people to, to be a part of that. Um, and I just want to be sort of a, maybe a catalyst to that too. Yeah. And then talking about mountain biking, like, oh my God, Jeff, like, God, can you imagine the, geom- ge- the geometries of bikes back in the day, right. 10 years ago? Yeah. Oh man, I was wondering why I crashed so much. I mean, I'm also <laughs> a mediocre mountain biker. But the trails that are being built around here. I mean, when was the first time you did Big Creek free free ride area? Oh man, well yeah, that's an interesting one because I used to ride that uh, with my brother. My brother was in high school. I had already left and gone to college, but he lived in the area. He lived up there in Alpharetta, and he and his buddies would ride there. But it wasn't an official trail. It was just some woods. Where, you know, it was behind like an office park and we would park at the, at the office building and kind of sneak into the woods and they built these trails that, yeah, they just cut straight down the hill and, you know, they push back up to the top. And so, yeah, it was, it was very different. So yeah, we were riding Big Creek before it was, before it was a real thing. But yeah. Yeah. So I'm interested. I mean, you're saying that you've seen all this growth and I imagine COVID, you know, kind of accelerated some of that too with shelter in place and people aren't, you know, going to the gym and doing their indoor cycling right now. So they're, they're getting outside and getting on bikes. When all of this hit, what did you, did you foresee that? Did you think like, Oh, this is going to be great for cycling or were you, were you a little worried when COVID hit and shut everything down? I was, I was pretty worried. I mean, um, if you talk to any bike shop owner out there, I mean, the margins are tight. Mm-hmm. You know, all the things I just talked about, like you can't just close your eyes and just let a bike, uh, bike shop run. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of owners that do that, but, you know, so just if no, was no, if there was no COVID, I mean, it's still always going to be a lot of hard work and it's always going to be tight margins, even if you sell the really expensive bikes. Mm-hmm. So when COVID hit and I had to shut my doors down, I was like, well, a day or two or three being closed is, is, is hits, hits the bank a bit. Um, so I was, I was very nervous and, and that was new. So I, you know, I, I didn't live Well, I did ride bikes. Uh, I did work in shops during the last recession that actually was people riding a lot back then because gas prices were really high, but mm. yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty nervous and 
um, I had a family and I was worried about my staff. Um, and then, so I, you know, to be honest, like there was a point where it just all started. I had to tell myself I might have to close. Um, and, uh, that I just had to embrace that reality. Mm-hmm. And then with the help of, uh, really great people, Atlanta Bicycle Coalition, um, big shout out to Steven Spring, really did the research and talked to the representatives to make sure that we were essential. So we were open, backed up, but still this lingering thing. I'm like, how, how, how is this going to be sustainable? Um, and you can't, there's no book on this. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we thought, we thought people would be losing jobs. You know, I mean, a lot of people have lost jobs. And so you assume one of the first things you cut out is, is cycling for a lot of people. Cause it's just, you know, it's recreation. It's like, it's what you do when you're not working. Yeah. Have you had to adjust operations to keep your employees and your customers safe? How's that looking for you right now? Yeah, I mean, early on, there's a few of my staff members that have uh, are extremely high risk. Uh, so I just sat individually with them, and as a group, you know, like, all right, what do you feel comfortable with? And mm-hmm. you know, we it's it's interesting that like there's not much more information in terms of what this this virus does in terms of keeping safe, like wearing a mask and social distancing and uh, trying to stay not seeing groups indoors it's still the same from it is from it started. So, um, I'm glad that there hasn't been too much change in that, but so I, I, I kept, I shut the doors and fortunately we have a system called Ikeono that texts that basically integrates with our point of sale system. So just transferring everything to, to text and be able to communicate that way and really kind of shift the shop into an appointment only. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I know many shops that open backed up and, you know, are calling and people can walk in in some sort of capacity. We're still just 100% text. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. actually nice because we can slide out a time for each customer and give them 100% of our attention. Uh, talking about if any bike shop, anyone who's worked in a bike shop before understands if you have your doors open in the middle of summer, obviously pre-COVID, 20 people walking in your store is one of the most stressful things. You know, you have three, four, even if you have 10 people on staff and you have more people coming in than you have staff members, it is extremely stressful. But being able to t- communicate with customers like, hey, I, you know, we're not open, you know, we're pretty booked up this day, can you come this day? And people, most people like that because they know that they're not going to be standing next to a customer, uh, another customer that potentially may have COVID or not. So, but then also just, you know, being organized, you know, just we're meeting here too. We're going to talk about this really cool gravel bike and I'm going to give you 100% of my attention. Mm. I think that that customer service is really appreciated and it's really hard. Like when you walk into a store and it's really busy and you're like, Oh, they're not even looking at me. It's like, well, we're trying, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm juggling five people. I'm sorry. I can't give you 100% of my, my attention, but the way that we've operated now is, 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 is nice. And, and taking that stress away of, of danger of, of being, exposed has been has been nice yeah yeah i imagine some people too prefer it i mean like you said there are advantages to interacting that way and you know i mean people for example i I mean i know not the same thing at all but people you know one of the least pleasant experiences in people's lives is buying a new car right (laughs) so like oh man i gotta go talk to the sales guy and you know the back and forth and you know a bike is clearly is not not quite that same level but for some people it probably is stressful and it's you know they feel like there's an information imbalance where they're coming in not knowing a lot and the salesperson knows way too much about bikes um, and so kind of like yeah disintermediating that is that is that a word like the process <laughs> doing it over over text or over the phone yeah. i think kind of levels it makes people more comfortable maybe and makes it a little less stressful all around I was uh, listening to a podcast about uh, trust and um, in, in terms of social economics here, but you know there are countries that have a higher rate of trust. Uh, you know, European countries, Asian countries, uh, and African countries. Um, but in America, the, the trust level here for anyone or politicians is actually pretty low. Mm. Even our neighbor, you know, if you ask the typical American, do you trust the next person? It's actually pretty low. So translate that in terms of we are as a society, and and yeah, going into the uh, even to the doctor or to the to buy a new phone, like, oh, is this person going to try to get me another appointment to just to, to to get more money? And you know, that's that's the I think a lot of people think that way. So what we do, and I'm glad you brought this up, was that 
you know, when you start with text, they ask a question and, you know, you know, you, anyone could go down YouTube and search the best thing bike and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when you do one search, what, you know, hundreds of articles show up, hundreds of videos show up. But the way we do it is, and, and I'm still working on this, and we have some uh, pre-made templates on our tech service systems, like, cool, you're looking in a bike. Here are the questions that really that you need to answer. You know, what is your budget, your height, what kind of riding you like to do, you know, belt line, gravel, mountain, uh, and what's your experience? Mm-hmm. Give me those snippets of bites, and I will get you the, you know. Um, people like that succinct sort of like, oh, cool. Um, they really want to narrow down what I want. And then from there, open the conversation, hear what's available. And someone comes in like, I really want a mountain bike. And yeah, I just want to ride it on the streets. And I'm like, well, let's not do that bike and <laughs> kind of steer them the other way. And so what we do is we empower them with information. And um, our, the sort of new in- version of this sh- website is going to have like, why, what the hell is a base layer? What the it's difference between clipless and, and, and flat pedals? And you could definitely go down the internet and find that stuff, but... When you have one source that's the expert giving you the tools to understand things, I think that's really powerful. You know, if I if I imagine like texting a car place like, hey, I'm looking for a car, and then they did the same thing that we're doing, like, well, look at this article. We recommend reading this and you could, you know, you know, we're you know, at the end of the day, like I tell my staff this and I tell all my customers this, we offer the experience. You're gonna make the decision. I think a lot of trust might be broken in terms of you know we've all been sort of oversold on stuff but you know we we start the conversation really just getting more information from them it's really they're talking we're just just snippets of information and and then once we meet you know those text messages could you know range 30 minutes 45 minutes but we're through a span of time you know here's an article take time to read it and they come back like wow that was a cool article well what do you think about this and you know well here's another thing and it's just like when they finally come to our door for the test ride, oh, they're already empowered, right. and all they're all we're doing is just showing them how. And actually, we actually show people how to get on and off of a bike. It's I think a very simple thing, but most bike shops don't show that, and that's fine. You know, like I said, all those things shops are really stressful when you're juggling a flat fix on top of selling a hybrid on top of selling accessories to another customer. You 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 don't have energy or time to show people the basics. Um, and I think I, I created my shop to make sure like, hey, this is how you get on off the bike safely. This is how you use a shifter. And we spend almost an hour with each customer, even if they're buying a hybrid. I'm sure some bike shop owners and uh, own, uh, <laughs> employees roll their eyes at that, like an hour with one customer. But the, but the return rate of that is incredible. When you really look at this barrier of, entry into cycling and you the bike mechanic or bike owner uh, bike shop owner breaks that barrier down for that customer oh my gosh they are so appreciative and that's why we retain our customers and empower them to 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 be safe equals enjoyment so that being said like talking about mountain bikes what does compression do jeff what does rebound do do, do you, you know, what is tubeless systems? You know, all that stuff, like we get the customer to do the research, the, the right information that we think is, is valuable. Uh, and then they, and then we set them up for them. But you know, that's another thing I've seen is like people buy all these really nice mountain bikes from other shops and here's a $5,000 mountain bike, enjoy the trails. Um, <laughs> but don't do a SAG setup or don't send them an article like this is what you should do. Like even the minimum to do that. Again, that's why I started my own shop because these are the things that I find valuable and it's what I want to do for a shop. And like I said, it's hard for everyone to do that. But, and then second to that is, well, pre COVID (laughs) (laughs) is, is you get them set up, you empower them to know your bike, where to ride NTB project, the Google bike maps layer. Everyone's got a bike app on their phone. No one knows about it. Mm -hmm. And they start to explore and they come back and then you invite them on that group ride you invite them to M plus M or Bonafide Riders or to Dirty Mustache. Uh, and and that community builds and that trust continues. And it's that's sort of the vision of what I do and how COVID, pre-COVID is what I'm going to continue to do. It's just the process just changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how has COVID affected inventory and your ability to get bikes and parts? What are, what are like lead times looking like for you right now? 
Yeah, I was actually talking to um, a fellow bike shop owner too, and, and glad that we have open communication with other shops. You know, I, I will say that we as bike shops are stronger together than we are apart. You know, I, I, I disagree with, you know, this, this is all this bad blood from bike shops of the past. Like you took, you took my Trek dealership from me. I hate you forever. And I, you know, that's, that's, it sucks, but you know, I think it's a different world now, especially with online sales and everything, Mm -hmm. but being able to commute with your, uh, communicate with your local bike shop and work with uh, another shop and and work with them, I think is very important these days. Uh, But yeah, the, Right now, pretty much everything from Specialized is sold out for model year 21, uh, which means, which I thought was more December, but actually is through June. So really to give you, yeah, the, the way that I've been explained to what's happening, and I'm sure everyone feels this, is, you know, take um, a stump jumper alloy and say for model year 21, they make a thousand bikes. Mm-hmm. There are 1200 back orders. Whoa. So for that year, I mean, those numbers are just, uh, just, I just pulled them, but essentially whether it's 80, a hundred, 200, 2000, the, the amount of orders surpass the bikes that are coming in for that period of time. So you just, we're just sitting on a massive list of back orders for me, hundreds of thousand dollars of bikes just in back order and just oh, wow. hoping, hoping one or two trickle in. And every morning I have allocated emails like, you're getting these two bikes. I'm like, oh, two bikes. <laughs> I never thought I'd be so happy with two bikes. Um, but that's the story. Um, other shops you know, put in big orders and they're only allocated a quarter or 10%. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking. And I, I'm, I'm at this point where I, I'm I can't, I personally can't be stressed out about it because I can't do anything about it. You know, you could bang at specialized door and they can't do anything because they're just as stressed out because they're banging out, they're banging the doors of their uh, uh, production warehouses and their shipping containers. Like they're, the line keeps on going. Um, I've heard that, you know, like some, there are tens of thousands of bikes of one model that are ready to ship, but they can't find brakes. Oh, right. That, you know, people don't realize, people don't realize that the little things like, plastic pedals you just can't get plastic pedals you can't buy grips you can't buy chains it is hard but um you know we're we're surviving we have some inventory and and just trying to look at different avenues to to look really focus heavily on on um service and just trying to communicate as well as we can with our customers so yeah, we'll we'll talk about service and repairs. We're hearing that wait times for, you know, a lot of even routine bike repairs and services were taking a month or more at a lot of shops. Are you are you seeing that as well? Uh yeah, we were probably max 3 to 4 weeks on things and I know talking to other two other shops around town, they they were about the same for for each place. So, and it's like Someone will text us like, "Hey, can you get this tune-up done in a week?" And we're like, "No." <laughs> and like they, I was like, "You can try other shops." You know, some people get really mad and they they start another shop, and then once they contact two, three, four shops, they're like they'll come back to us like, "Okay, everyone else is even further out." So right. it's it's like the competition. There's like we're like one whole. I feel like we're all one whole bike shop because we're all in the same place. Like. If, if I can't sell a $2,000 road bike here, they're going to go down to the next shop and they can't find one there either. So it's, it's, it's hard, mm. but yeah, so service, we're, we're just trying to keep our head above the water. But as you mentioned before, like it's hard to, Hey, this thing is a new Shimano shifter and they're not available. I've actually, and it'd be interesting if anyone has any input in this, we work at shops, but, um, if I can't buy it through my local distributors, I go to Amazon, which I actually early on realized, and this is sort of a part of my business plan but online sales like you can work with them you know you can work with people who buy canyons you can work with people who buy uh yts or uh, any other bike brand that you buy online they're still going to need that service of setting up suspension and if you can be the one that tells them like hey your suspension's not set up very well i know you bought this online but can i do a a sag setup for you for 25 30 bucks can i make your bikes tubeless can i measure your 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 sit bone so we get you the right saddle can we get you on a fit on this road bike that you got there's opportunity for those sort of things and um if someone is going to buy a part on amazon and bring it to us like why don't I'll just buy it on Amazon myself and just make the money on service. And and that way the customer's like, well, I don't have to make another trip. Well, okay, that's nice of you. And like 
I've bought stuff from competitive cyclists and just <laughs> sold them, you know, charges on the shipping and, the, right. and that, and I get the service. But, you know, to, to sit bike pe- people in bike shops and owners to sit back and like, and not utilize those resources, if their you know, customer's going to do it anyways, like, why not? But that's my take. Yeah. Uh, so I've actually had to go down to, God, I had to buy some stuff at REI. <laughs> wow. You make it happen. And I know that people appreciate that. And one of the things I've experienced myself too is like, you know, a lot of times you don't even know exactly what you need. Right. And I'm sure you see this with customers where they buy a part online. They think, you know, oh, this is the headset, you know, I'm just going to buy it online and I'm going to have Earl, you know, install it at his shop. And they get there and you're like, this isn't the right one. This isn't going to work. Like, so yeah, I could see that that being helpful as well. Bike shops are really a good resource for that. Um, just letting you, letting you know what the right part even is. So yeah, but we also have to survive. And you know, I I I tell a lot of customers like, hey, I'm you know, if I get the feeling, I'll ask them blatantly. He's like, all right, are you going to buy this online? You're going to buy it from me. Um, am I going to install it? Or am I going to not? And and that's that's an honest question because I'm 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 also advocating for myself and my staff. Like. You know, this is a very hard job, just like any other job. Um, and uh, unfortunately, because people can can look some stuff on YouTube, doesn't mean you should do it. <laughs> right. And um, even though you can buy it online, do, do you do you really want to do it? You know, and and uh, I mean, just looking thinking of like suspension, like geez, forty four mil offset, <laughs> right. Uh, right? True axles, you know, headset configurations. Like, um, but if you can be take a moment and be gentle with the customers and encourage them to buy from you and be like, Hey, I'm going to buy the right thing. I actually tell customers like, Hey, I'm going to buy the right thing. And if I don't, it's on me. If you buy the wrong thing, that's on you, dude. Right. And, uh, <laughs> or gal or whoever, um, and, and to, to, to really advocate for your skill and, and your, and your knowledge and, and when you, when, and do it right and take care of them and they're going to come back. They might still buy stuff online, but they're going to come to you more for other things because that trust is built. Yeah. But so it starts with utilizing those resources. Hmm. Well, are you seeing a lot of older bikes that people are kind of dusting off and putting back into service right now during COVID? And and what are like some of the really common repairs that you're making? I think it's all over the place. I mean, I think the the repairs are the same. You know, whether it's uh, you know a ten year old road bike with Durace or Gosh, I, I hate to say, I don't like re- really working on older full suspension bikes because you can't buy seals anymore. You know, like you can't buy an old seal, CTD Fox seal for some stuff. Um, so unfortunately, we start those conversations pretty short. You're like, hey, sorry, we can't get these. Um, but you know, whether it's an old Trek hybrid or a or a or a really high end road bike, you know, if its parts are worn out, the parts are worn out. The labor is still going to be the same. If I'm going to spend two hours on a bike whether it's a really high-end one or a lower-end one, it's the same service. It's just the parts that cost differently. So to answer your question, um, what we're seeing is just seeing old bikes that are left in the garage, but they're worn out. Brake pads have uh, dwindled down, scraped the hell out of rims. Drivetrains are, are, are messed up. And again, you know, I, I encourage people in bike shops to advocate for yourself. Like if something's going to cost $350, tell a customer, this is what it costs to make this thing ride really great. This is what's going to cost to make this bike feel safe this is what's going to cost for you to enjoy the bike and you know if you do xyz you know replace your chain once or twice a year it's not going to cost this much next time right but you know i'm very thorough with with my service and i really want i really encourage my staff and tell them like this is my standard i want every bike to feel this way and and the biggest thing is it's it's safety and you can't cut those corners Mm -hmm. you can't so really it's just all the Pretty much they're all the same. <laughs> um, but, you know, sort of the thing that I'm trying to move forward is like being able to like communicate to customers and check out what, you know, if they bought a bike from me or I knew that they had a, bought a new bike pretty recently to reach out to them like, hey, did you get your 50 hour suspension service? Yeah, I guarantee it's going to feel so much better when you do it. Um, especially if you ride the trails that we are right here, you know, Big <laughs> Creek, cold water. And then second is that it's going to cost more to to replace a busted fork, I've seen enough stanchions scratched up because, you know, the seals are dried to, to, to first educate them that this stuff's important, but then also say like, your bike's just going to ride better. You're going to have more fun. Yeah. So it's, it's not just sitting back and like waiting for work to come in, which right now it's just like a flood 
still has a flood. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but to, to reach out to customers, not necessarily, of course, to generate more revenue in terms of service, but also just to do what's right. You know, like mm-hmm. it's if my, you know, I, I used to go to a car mechanic shop. It was like, hey, six months later, you know, like you, you, have you ridden in this many miles in your car? You mm-hmm. want to come in for an oil change? I find that very important. I could say I don't need it. I don't want it. Yeah. But that, that extra step of being like, okay, you know, you're just really kind of looking out for me. Of course you have to make money. Right. <laughs> but yeah. You know, like even tire sealing, like Jeff, when's the last time you replaced your, you know, added sealant to the bike you ride the most. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that would be great. I need to get on your list and you can, you can remind <laughs> me like that. Cause I do forget. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, and my, actually now that I think about it too, I should probably get someone my, in my bike right now too. But those are the things that I think like, shops can do can do really well um and build better connection with people but currently to answer your real question it's it, the service is the same it's just more and more and more and more of it um and uh it's it's cool once once i get through the stress of it all it's all really cool <laughs> are some some repairs more challenging than others i mean are they the ones that we assume that are tough the ones that you know more experienced people don't want to do at home themselves like I don't know, rebuilding wheels. Uh, that's me personally talking right now. I don't know. Maybe some people like doing that, but yeah. What are some of the, the more challenging repairs? I don't know. I've, I've maybe have been sort of like take, I've, I've taken a bit of time kind of looking at sort of our purpose uh, as a business, um, a business in, in COVID as well as sort of an advocate for building a cycling community. And, and then also internally looking at like who I am as a person, you know, I think at the end of it, I am a bike shop owner, but I don't define myself as a bike shop owner. I want to change people's lives and I just so happen to be a bike shop owner. <laughs> yeah. But but that being said too, like I'm also a tinkerer. I didn't really realize that until I I, I, I don't really do as much work as I used to in terms of bike repairs, but I put a 1975 Raleigh in my stand, rusty to hell. <laughs> and uh, I looked at it and, be, and I looked at it with a smile because I'm like, someone taught me 15 years ago that these you know, this is an oil-based paint and if you want it to shine you just put some oil on it mm-hmm. wipe it down and it gleams huh. and and i wouldn't have known that if i haven't spent 15 years doing it i also found out to remove rust just put a little oil on it take a bristle pad and, and it's or a steel wool and it, it cleans it right off yeah but again i don't know that until because i only know that because i've been doing this for so long and I, I encourage my staff to take pride in what they know. And when you don't know something, learn it and love it. You know, I remember like, I know this whole bike. I took it all apart, put it all back together. It rides great. There was a part of the, 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 the brake lever that broke. I've never taken apart this brake lever on an old Raleigh. Yeah. So I did it and I solved it. And leaving it knowing that, okay, next time this happens, I know it. Yeah. And I think a lot of customers, a lot of, people in bike shops are just so inundated with work that they're stressed out when something breaks. But I always take it a moment. It's like, well, it's got to get fixed. So take the moment to learn it. But the next time it comes up, you're going to be a freaking pro at it. <laughs> so to, re- to again, answer your question, like what's more difficult, if you don't know it, it's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to bleed a brake, I mean, to be honest, when I opened up the shop about two years ago, I had maybe bled two brakes <laughs> in my lifetime. Um, so I took my staff together. We bought all the kits and we learned together. I learned more and I started start on my bike because if I failed, then I'm just destroying my own bike. <laughs> right. And within a couple weeks, we were all pros and we could tell people with a straight face like, Hey, we'll bleed your brakes. We'll do it really quickly and we'll do it really well. Or do I just sit back and kind of problem solve like, Oh, I don't know how to do this on every bike, but really encourage my staff and myself to, to, to accept the challenge with a smile and be like, i I'm going to be better from learning this. So whether, you know, I have a new staff member who's really only been starting wrenching with me and, and her, her level of skill of mechanics is through the roof. And a lot of that is because she's humble and she's like, I don't know this, but I have people around me that can show me and I'm going to retain this information. I'm going to do it faster next time. That attitude is what I care about. I don't really care as much about, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years. Like, cool. Do you have the, the 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 sort of wherewithal to to be humble and be like, okay, I don't know this or how to do it better? Yeah, yeah, and because stuff is changing too. I mean, there's always new things to learn. 
And yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask a little later, but yeah, like what about e-bikes, right? I mean, e-bikes I'm sure are a really different thing for everybody in the industry. People who have been wrenching on bikes for a long time. Is that, has there been a big learning curve for mechanics to work with e-bikes? Uh, not, not a ton. You know, I, I think there's definitely, I think we've had enough e-bikes to be like, okay, we're not going to touch that. Um, and then also just sort of looking at customer service, like who's going to be able to, to answer your questions easier, what companies, uh, specialized is really great at that. Obviously been working on for a really long time. They're also, um, you know, some of the probably unanimously some of the best biking mount e-bikes uh out there and especially in their mountain bike realm of things mm-hmm. you know again it's like going back to sort of that mechanic and the person working on the bike like do you define yourself as a bike mechanic and i know how to do these hundred things or do you really define yourself as someone who likes to solve problems and and again like i think i think we're so defined as sort of like i'm I'm a bike mechanic and this is what a bike should be. And it's like, n- n- no, like you're someone who want who you know, I think pe- people in shops should be like, I'm, I'm someone who wants to solve a problem to get these people riding and enjoy riding their bikes. So if you take that e-bike and the batteries and the complexity of that, it's not any different than learning how to adjust a front derailleur. I mean, anyone out there who knows the new 105 or Altegra derailleurs is a different type of derailleur. Like I've been using, I've been doing double front derailleurs for years. And once the the new 105 Omtegras come go to my stand, it's a completely different derailleur. Mm. You don't adjust it like you did the, the derailleurs from 20 years, like from, right. from the last 20 years. Yeah. So to look at that and be like, this is not a derailleur. I don't know how to do this. Be like, <laughs> oh, this is a different derailleur. This is a different problem to solve. Yeah. So I think, yes, it is a learning curve, but. I mean, so is access, if wireless access, if you've never done it. So is the junction box and DI2 system, if you've never worked on it, uh, electronic shifting. So I think, again, just, you know, going into the problem, taking a breath, saying, I don't know this, but hey, there's this thing called the internet. <laughs> and there are people on the other end, like at Fox and at Rockshaw, that can help you out once you get into a problem. There's also, uh, you know, hopefully you have an owner or a, a service manager that will take the time to explain stuff to you. Because again, if you invest it now, if you invest it on the problem that's in front of you, the next time it's going to be fast. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think people, because shops are so stressful, you don't look past that. You just look with this thing and you're so inundated with this thing in front of you right. and, and really know that like, Hey, I'm going to be better after leaving this. And, um, it's not going to be a challenge next time. So I think, yeah, they're, 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 they're different, but I'm excited to work on them yeah. <laughs> when I get a chance to do, to do them. And I, I encourage myself to be excited about those too. Yeah. Right on. Well, do you worry that delays in getting parts and inventory is pushing some of your customers toward alternatives like buying things online or, you know, even in the example of wrenching at home, you know, I mean, people have access to videos and they can teach themselves how to bleed brakes or that kind of thing. Do you see that happening now? And and if so, do you think it'll be sort of long term, too, where people are like, stop relying on their their bike shop as much? Uh, I mean... To, to be honest, and and I actually encourage people to to start doing a lot of this stuff on their own. You know, like this is going to sound horrible, but like if I have if if my staff has you know ten bikes to repair, if I don't have to, if we don't have to fix ten flats in a day, you know, if we have if we have ten r- big tune-ups to do, and if we don't have to do five flat fixes, why not? You know, like I, I'm I'm up, I'm I'm all about that. I'm very hopeful that more and more and more people are getting into bikes. You know, this is going to sound crazy, but like, say I was still working in Madison, Wisconsin, and, you know, uh, a couple comes in with uh, with their bike tune-ups or their, I sell them a bike, and they have a five-year-old kid, you know. 15 years later, that kid's 20 years old. That kid is an adult now and will want to buy a bike. So even if the parents already know how to do their stuff, their kid is going to want to learn how to, you know, need, needs us. Yeah. yeah. And, and sort of like, it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, you sell all these bikes in the summer. You're like, wow, that was a lot of bikes sold. Are more people going to get into bikes? And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're talking about, you know, you as a, as the uh, starter, you know, who started single tracks, you know, you understand how 
if you go on a 10 mile mountain bike ride and you know 10 miles out 10 miles in you sure damn well need to know how to fix your tubeless system right. or uh break a chain to put it back together mm -hmm. I, that's the stuff i want people to learn you know again a, in terms of a bike shop like if we have these big repairs to do these 200 hour suspension um rebuilds and someone comes in because they want their chain replaced it's like <laughs> we'll do it we'd love it but we, we'd actually encourage you to 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 do it and you know if we you know we're not in the business to give um uh, free advice that they're going you know, to do it to them. That's not what we're here for. Um, but I also know resources where you can go, you know, I always tell people go to Sopo bike collective. You don't know how to do X, Y, Z and you have time on your hands. Go get, go get your hands dirty, rebuild some bikes, go to bearings bike shop and see right. if you can help out in any sort of way and learn again. It's not necessarily about I'm fixing this 1971 Schwinn, but you know, the things you learn on a 1995 Trek, uh, 930 is going to somehow translate to the other bike. So mm -hmm. I encourage people to, to know how to, to work on bikes. You know, if I want more and more of my customers to ride longer and faster and further, I would love if you knew how to fix your bike so you can get home safely or get home to your, de go to your destination safely. And in the end, you're not going to have all the tools to fix everything. You're not going to. And if you want to invest in that, awesome. If you want to take the chance, awesome. And if you fail, we're here. Mm -hmm. And to encourage people to do that. In the end, people are going to need work on their bikes. It's, it's sort of why I don't work on my car. Because like, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what's broken. Right. Um, so I'm going to take it to the experts. So if I do that for this, I, I encourage my, my customers to do the same. Yeah, that's good. And obviously you take the long view on a lot of this stuff. And and also there's always going to be different types of people. You know, some people have more time than money. And so they are able to invest that time into learning how to do something and then and then doing it. And then others are they're short on time and they have no problem, you know, paying the shop to do it. So I'm sure that won't change. So has the bike boom been good for your shop financially? Do you think that this boom is going to last? I think the boom is going to plateau, but I think there's still going to be a rise. Um, and again, you know, I was talking to another shop owner here, here uh, talking about different cities and, you know, they're talking to other friends who own bike shops, you know, for instance, like Chattanooga, like I know Atlanta's cycling community pretty well. And I'm, I say pretty well because I'm still learning and it can change in a dime. But then you take the next city next to you and you're like, well, are they doing the same thing? Are they experiencing the same thing? Talking about socioeconomics, talking about access to bike paths. You know, that's another thing that I talk a lot with people is like, I can, you know, any bike shop can sell bikes all day. But if you don't have trail, mountain bike trails built, if you don't have paths for people to start on, if you don't have safe places to ride or even information to do these things, like it, it doesn't matter. You know, like there's a reason why you don't sell, see full suspension mountain bikes really sell well in Oklahoma because there's no, there's no hills, you know, there's not, it's pretty flat. So, um, having access to, to these places, um, makes, uh, makes a really big difference, uh, in terms of that growth. And sort of, that's why big, big, big props to MTB Atlanta and all those trail builder organizations out there that are literally volunteering their time to not only themselves enjoy cycling, mountain biking for free, for getting more and more and more people to do it. And places like Atlanta, where, again, um, Executive Director Brett Davidson and I have a really great relationship, and I like to touch base with him, like, what are you doing? I'm excited to learn because I want to send my customers to you guys. And they have built so many trails during this COVID. So as a little hit here, please, please donate to your local trail builders because they are, and if you ride them a lot, and then also please don't ride with them when, when they're, it's really wet <laughs> unless the trail says you can ride them wet. So I think the boom is going to plateau uh, or, or continue. I don't know, but remove that boom. Cycling is going to grow. Cycling is going to grow here in Atlanta. Um, I, I hope the same for, for other cities out there as other towns. Yeah. Yeah. So as the infrastructure grows, yeah, people will continue to be into it. And one of the things I can't help, but, wonder is, you know, I mean, cycling is not a, a cheap sport compared to other things to get into. And so there is that kind of, you know, a lot of people have decided over the last nine months or so, I'm going to get a bike, you know, I'm going to invest $500 or $2,000 or whatever it is. 
and get this bike and and now you have it right like you know maybe you're going to get tired of it over time but it's going to take a while and you're going to remember like okay you know i made a commitment to this and um so yeah i'm hopeful that it will last for that reason too just because people aren't good at ignoring those (laughs) sunk costs yeah yeah well a big part of operating a, a bike shop obviously is connecting with the community through, as you mentioned, group rides and social events and, you know, a lot of shops too. People just come, they just want to come in and talk bikes and hang out. So what's it been like to put those things on pause for now? It's been a a bit, it's definitely been hard since I'm I'm a very extroverted person and I I built the shop to be very commuter based. I mean, had uh, had a little lounge area for people to just to, to hang out in. Um, there was uh, Hop City, which is a, a, a beer store. Fortunately, closed next to us. It was nice to see people just come in and drink beers and hang out. And actually, some of my my, my friends and customers, good customers, talking to customers, new customers. It was, it was really cool to see that. It's, it's it was always cool to have people come by and just have a chat. However, when you have ten bikes in the you know queue to get. Uh, uh, you know, a tune-up uh, quote sent out. You have 20 bikes in the back and 10 flat fixes to do. And then you have, and I'm not joking when I say this, we get about 300 messages a day um, with about 40 to 50 unique people texting. <laughs> so when you have all that and then your friend wants to come by and have a beer, it's like, okay, <laughs> I really want to hang out right now, but it's hard. And 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 because uh of the bike boom and the demand for repairs and demand for bikes has gone through the roof and it's still continuing. Like we're still seeing so a flood of work come through our doors. It's, it's been nice to, to not have um, as many, many people come by and and chat. And again, that stuff is very valuable and I love the community, but um, unfortunately we're just a bit spread too thin right now. And and so again, that's where I think social media is really important. And, you know, I think when we share our stories and we share our posts I'm like, oh, you're your friend that we, you know, you're you're the you're my buddy that we mountain biked many times a year ago, but we haven't in COVID. It's nice to just have them comment and then you comment back, and it's just we can't hang out, high five, and and have a beer um, or do a thirty group mountain bike ride right now. But um, I'm gonna just appreciate your messaging me saying, yeah. cool bike, <laughs> or <laughs> or something, and and I'll take that. Um, and then also at the same time, like try to take care of the new customers. And, and I think that's, what's really exciting is like all these people that are coming in, just like you said, they're all new. So they're all a part of our community. And then once everything is cool, we have even a bigger pool of people to say, Hey, come join us and ride. And, and, um, but right now, yeah, it's on pause and it's okay. Yeah. Well, based on all the ways you've had to adapt and kind of the new ways of doing business, uh, what do you think things are going to look like once, you know, it's back to quote unquote normal, you know, like when we're able to interact in person and the shop is the doors are open at least again, what's the new normal going to look like? Like what's, what's maybe the biggest thing that's going to be different, good or bad, uh, when, when you're able to reopen? I think just the appreciation of people. I think, I, I think that whether it's a bike shop or not, you're going to, you're going to do that. You know, I haven't hugged my mom or dad in months and it's something that I, I, I cherish. And, um, I also love, you know, giving my friends hugs and stuff like that's, it's, it's, it's interesting that that's not here. So even just the, the simple human thing, um, I, I'm, I'm being, I'm going to be a little bit pessimistic here, uh, in terms of just how long this is going to last. I think this is going to last a really long time. Um, and, and I hate that this is such a political thing with masks and things, social distancing and things. And I get, why restaurants stay open and they're not abiding to certain things. Cause it's business is hard. I'm going to tell you that as a business owner, yeah. it's hard. Yeah. And, um, if, if it wasn't for the bike boom, I don't know where I would be. And uh, I don't know what debt I'd be in if, it, if, if, if I had to close down my shop, I'm lucky to have uh, a business that is, is doing really well right now, but I understand why other ones are doing it. But the numbers of COVID cases are insane. They're insane. And you, there's no if, ands, or what's about it. You can have your own opinion about it, but the truth is the numbers are insane. So I think, unfortunately, it's going to be a long time. So I'm actually still looking at this pile of wood that I need to put in my van right now. But uh, I'm reconstructing the shop to just be better for our staff, to have bigger spaces, to do more of that bigger repairs, and to have more breathing room, and really just dwindle down our sales floor. Two reasons, because no one's coming in, and we don't have a ton of bikes in. So 
to really answer your question, what it's the new normal going to be like, this appreciation for, for the, the fellow human being. And honestly, I don't think we're going to really do much different. We're still going to really take care of our customers as they come in and really, as, as my mission statement is, inspire them to utilize bikes to empower their lives. And that's not going to change, uh, whether it's COVID or you know, winter's coming, sort of doom or whatever. But uh, and and I hope, I hope other businesses and shops can can uh, do as well and, and continue growth. Yeah. Well, Earl, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. This has been super insightful for me, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find out more about Earl's Bike Shop at earlsbike.shop. Um, and if you're in Atlanta, definitely text him and get your bike worked on at the shop and see what he's got in stock. Hopefully a lot more stuff in 2021. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.